you know, when I think about what's ahead for me and what I want to do next, I think about how can I empower people, particularly our young people, to embrace compassion mm. in order to effectuate sustainable change for our country and for our planet and then ultimately for themselves. Hello, dear friends and damn givers. This is the Let's Give a Damn podcast, and I'm Nick LaPara. On this show, I have conversations with all kinds of amazing humans that have two things in common. They all give a damn, and they're all striving to live meaningful lives. Thank you for hitting play. Thank you for showing up this week. I'm incredibly glad you're here. I'm recording this on November 8th. Yesterday, on November 7, it was the 50th anniversary of the New York City Marathon. 35,000 runners this year. It begins on Staten Island and it ends a couple miles from our apartment at 72nd Street on the Upper East Side. We showed up to cheer them on for a bit yesterday and it was the most incredible experience I've had in a long time. I'm not kidding at all. It was spiritual. It was, it felt otherworldly. We were at mile 23 on the Upper East Side, and I've never run a marathon, but I imagine mile 23 is where you might say fuck it and throw in the towel. You've already been running for 20 plus miles, and your body is beginning to shut down. Let me tell you something. If you've never participated in or cheered on runners at a marathon, you have not yet experienced the fullness of what life has to offer. I'm serious. Yesterday changed my life. Over the course of the hour or two that I was there, and to be honest, I would have stayed longer, but we had kids and they were beginning to get very hangry and tired around 5 p.m. But over the course of the hour or two that I was there, I saw several thousand people run by. Every skin color, every body type. There were young people, there were old people, I saw people with disabilities. I'm not kidding you. I saw someone that was in the early stages of multiple sclerosis. They were using those forearm crutches and they had two people running alongside them to help them and sustain them. I saw several superhumans that were at least 75 or 80 years old that were running. I saw a guy that had saran wrapped ice packs to his knees, but he was still running. I'm not kidding you when I tell you that I cried 10 to 15 times during that hour or two. In fact, when I saw the person with multiple sclerosis running, I yelled louder than I had up to that point, and I just broke down crying. My, my hands were, my arms were in the air, Rocky style. I was yelling at this person, just cheering for them, and midway through my yell, I just broke down crying. I also started crying when I saw this older gentleman, probably 70 or 75 years old, and on his bib it said, 25 finishes and counting. I lost it. This guy had run and finished 25 marathons? Insane. It was also really cool because most of the runners had their names painted or markered or taped onto their shirts, so I could call them, or rather yell at them, by name. I can't tell you how many smiles and waves and thumbs-ups I got. In fact, 
and this was the ama- thing that amazed me. There were about 15 or 20 people over the course of that hour or two that were walking when they passed me at mile 23. But when they heard me shout their name, they started running again. They looked at me, would give me a thumbs up, a smile, and they picked up the pace. Now, maybe it was coincidence, maybe not. But all I know is that when I said, and I remember this one uh, uh, person in particular, when I yelled, go, Maria, you're almost there, and I'm so proud of you. When I yelled that at Maria, Maria started running again. And my kids even got into it, mostly my son, Roman. He was shy at first, but then when he started yelling people's names out and realized that there's nothing to be scared of with that, he just started cheering like crazy. He would find a name on someone's shirt or on someone's bib, and he would yell their name and say, he kept saying this over and over again. This was his message, I guess, that he latched onto. You can do this. You're so strong. You can do this. You're so strong. Over and over again. And yes, I cried when he did this too. And I told Rebecca when we were leaving the NYC Marathon that NYC Marathon Day is now a sacred day in our home. It just is. It is a revered day. It is a holiday. I will be there every single year cheering people on somewhere in the last few miles. Obviously, I hope and I assume that there are people along the entire path. But from what I know about my life and from what I saw yesterday at my first marathon, those last few miles are incredibly critical. I have never been more proud to be a human, and I have never been more proud of humans. And one last thing before we move on, mostly because I need the accountability from you all, my daughter, Belle, is convinced that she wants to run a marathon. That's, that was her takeaway as she's watching all these people. She kept saying, I want to run a marathon. I'm going to run a marathon. Hey, Papa, are there kids' marathons? She just would not let it go all the way home. And I'm convinced that she will and that I should run it with her. I have terrible asthma, and I've always used that as an excuse to not run. And it's a valid excuse. Don't take me wrong. Fellow asthmatics out there, back me up on this. It is really hard to run and exert oneself in that way with asthma. But as I watched all those people running yesterday, I couldn't help but think of how many asthmatics were in there. How many asthmatics told their asthma to fuck off so that they could keep on running. So someday, some year, I'm going to run a marathon. I may walk a good chunk of it. I may walk most of it, but I'm going to do it. It's going to happen. And one last feel-good story about the New York City Marathon. This morning as I was perusing the news, I saw that there was one runner that had run in the very first New York City Marathon 51 years ago and had returned decades later to run in the 50th anniversary of the marathon. Yes, As expected, I teared up when I read that story. Again, faith in humanity restored. I love humans so much. So moral of the story, if you want to renew your faith in the goodness of humans, go run in a marathon. Cheer people on at a marathon. 
volunteer at a marathon. Just make marathons part of your life from now on. Speaking of marathons, my guest this week is the incredible and stunning Joanne Molinaro, a.k.a. The Korean Vegan. Joanne is a now best-selling author, a marathon runner. Joanne was a trial lawyer and a partner at a Chicago law firm until last month, and she is the creator of the Korean Vegan Movement. I think it's a movement at this point. Joanne started the Korean Vegan blog in 2016 after going vegan, and during our conversation, she will explain more the significance of all that happened during that time. Then when the pandemic started in 2020, she began to make videos on TikTok. Fast forward 16 months, she now has 2.7 million followers on TikTok and a couple hundred thousand more on the other social media platforms. And why are people flocking to Joanne's content? Because she blends the making of gorgeous and amazing food with beautiful storytelling. And storytelling is one of the greatest tools that anyone on planet Earth can cultivate. And I told Joanne during our chat that a food video has never made me cry before until Joanne's content comes around. If you've never experienced Joanne's content, just go on her social media, go on her TikTok or her Instagram, watch these 60-second videos where she's making food and also telling a story, and tell me you don't feel all the feels by the end. During our chat, we talk about complicated family histories, why and how she became vegan, activism versus action, and so much more. Friends, you're in for a treat, and I'll shut up now so we can jump right in. Before we do that, however, really quickly, a quick reminder, as always, that you can, anytime and for any reason, email me at hello at letsgiveadam.com. You can ask questions recommend future guests, tell me how much you love or hate the show, anything really. I just love hearing from you. And now, without further ado, let's get right into my conversation with the one, with the only, Joanne Molinaro, aka the Korean vegan. Let's go. Joanne Molinaro, welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you, Nick, for having me. I'm excited to be here. And we're in person. Yes. Which is so fun <laughs> here in New York. Um, I That was one of the things that I missed the most during the pandemic. I, I recorded 60 interviews oh <laughs> throughout that year, year and a couple months, and they were all over Zoom. And it was fine, and people were amazing, and we all accommodated, right? But there's nothing like sitting across from someone having a good conversation. So I'm glad that we get to do that today. Yeah, I actually, in all candor, thought that this was going to be a Zoom podcast. And it wasn't until I was reviewing my emails. I was like, oh, wait, I get to do this one in person. And I hope that was a good thing. No, a it good is surprise. a good thing. Yeah. I haven't done one in person in several months. So it's very exciting. Fantastic. This is super exciting. I'm excited on a bunch of levels because uh, we have a new cookbook out, right, Yay. that we're going to talk about. And this is not typical. People listening to me are like, why the hell are you having somebody with a cookbook <laughs> on? This is a social impact podcast. And it's not really. It's a it's a podcast about all of life. Because in all of life, personally and outwardly, we have to give a damn and we have to figure out how to do that. But there's a, a ton of reasons why we are having you on the podcast. You have such an interesting story. And your ability to tell stories is incredible. Oh, thank you. And we'll get more into that. For uh, When I put out that I was interviewing you, 
week or two ago, whenever we scheduled that, when I saw that you were coming to New York, I emailed and we worked it out. More people than usual responded and were like, holy shit, Yay. she's coming on. That's so exciting. That's amazing. Including uh, one of my cousins who is uh, Asian, Catherine Manigros. Uh, she married my Italian cousin. That's why the very Italian <laughs> uh, surname. But she was like, please tell Joanne, thank you for representing the Asian community oh. so well and for just making that a huge part of who you I mean it's in the moniker right it's in the name yes. you're not just vegan chef you're not just vegan you know uh, 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 content maker you're the Korean vegan so I know that means a lot to so many people oh, that's so great. thank you for that um, we have so much to talk about let's start with uh, this past year and a half we are still technically in a pandemic uh, and we're not out of it yet because of a lot of reasons, including the fact that there are still millions of people that refuse to <laughs> get with the program. The same program that we've, the same way that we've dealt with these things for hundreds of years, uh, all of a sudden there's a big problem with how it's being done. Whatever. We're still here trying to get out of it, crawling our way out of it. But how was this past year and a half for you just very personally? Like how, how did you deal with it? Were there, what were the ups and downs that you had to deal with to kind of crush the pandemic. I mean, this thing is coming out and your like platform is blowing up and now you're free from the shackles of your former career. And you can make content full time. Like you didn't just survive. You thrived in the pandemic, it seems. How did that go for you? Well, a lot of things to unpack there. Um, there's a quote that I really love by another podcaster, Jonathan Fields. Oh, yeah. Um, right here in New York. Yeah, he's amazing. And he said recently in a different podcast, the Rich Roll podcast, there's like so many amazing podcasts that you guys are putting together. But he said, you know, with disruption comes opportunity. Mm. And I feel like that applies so well to the pandemic. I also want to be mindful of making sure that people don't feel pressured. Like, oh, well, other people are making so much out of disruption and the pandemic, and what am I doing? I'm sitting in my sweatpants watching Korean dramas, eating, eating ice cream every day. That's awesome, too. And I think that, you know, there are different kinds of opportunities that sort of arose for different people through the pandemic. And for me, the way I respond to anxiety is you know, some days crawling into my hole and, and watching dramas and eating ramen noodles all day. But for me, I felt like I needed to do something different with my life and creatively. So that's why I started my TikTok account. It, actually, I, I started the TikTok account in response to sort of the activism that I was seeing coming out of TikTok. Hmm. Um, this is right around the time where I was like super depressed about, um, you know, the Ahmad Arbery killing, mm -hmm. um, George Floyd, and what that was saying about our country, how much farther we had to go in order to heal. Um, and so I was really sad. I was like crying all the time. I was like, I don't know how to deal with this. I don't know how do you start to fix something that is so broken. And then I saw that article about uh, the Trump rally in Tulsa mm. and how these kids on TikTok like single handedly, <laughs> like completely, you know, uh, pulled this incredible act of activism that was both funny but powerful. Mm -hmm. And that's why I joined because I wanted to see it. Like I, I was getting all this like secondhand information about what these 
you know, people were doing on TikTok. And I was like, well, I want to join TikTok just to see what it is like firsthand. And it was exactly what it, you know, was um, advertised as being. And that was really fun. And just partaking in that sort of political dialogue in a very fresh, new and quite frankly, younger way. Um, and then, you know, inevitably, I was inspired to contribute first with political discourse and then with cooking. <laughs> So what what was that date? So around because because what some people might not understand is the kind of the magnitude of what you've created in such a short amount of time, right? And a lot of that can be attributed to you, and a lot of that is just pure fucking luck. I yes. mean, it's because so many people out there making content, right? And some people take off, and I think we're going to get into some of the reasons why your stuff resonates with people so much. But like, it's it wasn't that long ago that you started this journey to two point seven million TikTok followers just on TikTok alone. So what? What was there? Do you remember that sort of, I know you just talked about generally what was going mm -hmm. on, but like, what was the date so that we can just kind of put some timeline on, on this? It would have been July of 2020, which yeah. was when I first really dove into TikTok, started watching as a consumer and started posting as well. Yeah. And this is also around the time, as you noted that, I mean, you couldn't turn on the news or get right. on social media without seeing protests and without seeing... I mean, just the, the 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 insane rhetoric that was happening at a media level, you know, obviously many advocating for this and then many people, you know, talking about how terrible it was, buildings were being burned down and this and that and, you know, just the the lack of context for how things actually change in the world, right? Yeah. The lack of the lack of knowledge of how we've actually brought change to fruition in the past, it, it, it just seemed so insane that we we're, you know, listening to this news and watching this news day in and day out on social media and people just willful ignorance as to how we're actually going to make change in uh, the criminal legal system in within the police force uh, against black people, against Asian people, against all these, you know, uh, historically marginalized peoples. Um, it was a very hard time. That summer was incredibly hard. Yes. 260 of my friends just in Nashville alone were arrested during the, the protests oh and the rallies that we held. Um, it was a very, I mean, I, I remember very vividly during that summer and we're fighting again. I mean, that was the height of the pandemic where there were other spikes, but at that point we had no idea what was going on. We had no idea. We, we didn't know if it was masks or washing hands or how this thing was, you know, existing at that point. There were so many questions. And so we're out there virtually, you know, to the best of our knowledge, risking our health and maybe lives to go out there and speak out against these things. So it was a very uh, tumultuous time. It was tumultuous. It was fraught. Um, There's a lot of sadness, uh, despair, um, as well as just fear. Uh, people were afraid that they were going to get sick. They were afraid that they were going to lose their loved ones. They were afraid that they were going to lose their jobs. They were going to lose their homes. It was just intense fear. And, you know, I'm very lucky. I, you know, live in a great area. I live in a good neighborhood. I have a good job or I had a good job, but I was so afraid I was going to lose it like at any point and it would all evaporate. And so I think in many ways, creating content or watching content on TikTok was a balm to all of those things in a very extraordinary way. Now, there's different degrees of making content, right? And yours is clearly fits in the category of excellent in terms of, I mean, not just, again, we'll, we'll get into your ability to storytell in a very succinct, powerful way, but just the quality level. Like I make content as well here on the podcast and even on social media, but it is very, I mean, it's literally hold my camera up, 
rant at the camera for a minute, you know, and then post it, right? You know, the angles are bad, you know, maybe it catches my double chin, whatever. The lighting is off. It's just, you post it and boom, it's out there and yours is, you know, so excellent. And, and we'll, we'll get into in a minute your, um, yeah, your, your career has been as a trial lawyer, right? So how does a trial lawyer, and we'll get into that in a minute, kind of work their way through making good content again visually appealing not just audibly appealing but also visually like how what was that journey again in the middle of a pandemic you are figuring out how to shoot and edit and multiple cameras as best as i understand how did that process happen because there's a lot of people out there trying to make a difference and we're trying to use this these tools on social media that we have that are free, you know, algorithmically problematic, but free, right? And we can get our content out there for free. Like, how did you navigate those waters? Well, my first viral video was exactly what you just described. Uh, It was a phone with ugly angles that caught all the ugly things, wrong lighting, um, you know, no voiceover. You can hear my husband giving a piano lesson in the background. Yeah, it was just literally throw my phone up against the wall and see what happens and then post it. And that's what is the luck, you know, the the sheer luck that you mentioned at the beginning. There is a little bit of that factor in sort of content creation. And of course, once you get bitten by that bug, you're kind of like, okay, well, what's my next viral video going to be? And for me, I'm always thinking, well, how can I improve upon the last video that I did? Whether it's a better story, better written, better edited, uh, you know, better angles, better topic. And eventually, in probably a couple of months, I decided well, I want to really focus on creating beautiful videos, not just impactful, you know, from a storytelling perspective or through my voiceovers um, and not just, you know, providing a good recipe, but also providing a visual experience. And so, you know, I had some experience with photography. I, you know, took all the photos in my cookbook. So I I knew how to take photography, you know, photos. And it was just a matter of extrapolating that to videos, learning how to edit them with, you know, pretty intense editing software, uh, lots of YouTube videos, many, many hours of hating my computer. (laughs) Of course. Um, And just kind of figuring it out. So, you know, that was, again, one of the opportunities that the COVID provided. I was at home, like literally 24 hours a day. So if between meetings or phone calls at work, I had an hour break, well, I could spend that sort of futzing around with Final Cut or, you know, Adobe or with my camera. And, you know, within a little bit of time and with some practice, I was able to get to a point where I was really proud of the visuals from my videos. Was there a point that you, where you realized, where you figured out what was the best, what was the point where you figured out the best cadence for posting your content, right? Because a lot of it is that, you know, it's posting a certain amount of times or at different times. And like, did you ever figure out, well, clearly you did. What was that cadence that you kind of figured out where like, I need to put out this much content to keep building Mm -hmm. momentum on what I've begun to create? I would say for me, it was every day. Yeah, at least once a day. Yeah, at least once a day. And again, it was a situation where I was so regimented, really out of sheer anxiety. I mean, I would roll out of bed 
and immediately start my day, my, my billable hour day, you know, at seven in the morning. And I would bill, 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 bill until about five o'clock. Right. And at about five o'clock, I would start thinking about, well, what am I going to make for dinner? And, you know, I, I had a plan for dinner and then I would go back to my studio and I would start filming. And by about 730, I would have a video ready to post on TikTok. Um, and I did that almost every single day without fail for several months until it became a little bit too difficult for me to manage that with my job. So you were making the, these videos and then eating the food. Yes. This was not just this was you were this was you had made this video creation, this content creation, a part of your life. Yes. It was, I mean, this is really smart. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't faking it. This is what I ate every single day. And I think that's part of the magic of these videos. And by these videos, I don't just mean mine. I mean, on TikTok is they don't want something that feels removed. They want to remove actually the remoteness and feel like they're right there with you in your lives. And so they knew like, this is what I'm eating every single day. It may look very beautiful and there may be this sort of ethereal quality to the voiceover, but I I am eating this every day. I'm very bullish on TikTok because I think it's a very unique among the social media platforms and maybe others, maybe I felt the same way earlier on being on the others as well. I love Twitter. Twitter is where I exist. I can have, I have great conversations and I go back and forth with people, but visually TikTok takes the cake. Like if I had to give away all the others, I probably wouldn't give away Twitter, but I would get rid of everything else to stay on TikTok because it is a very fascinating platform where I feel like on Instagram, you still have to uh, be pretty, act pretty, uh, uh, feel pretty in what you post, right? For something to like really grow. Like, and then on on Twitter, it's every it's everybody. It's everything. It's everybody. It's stupid. If you want to find stupid shit, it is there <laughs> in droves. Or if you want to find really excellent quality content that moves you and that like changes how you think about stuff. There's also that and everything in between. It is incredibly unique. I love TikTok. Yeah, I love TikTok too. I I mean, obviously my community there is incredibly important to me. Uh, The people at TikTok are so supportive. I think what they have got with their algorithm and the way that their technology works has created something that none of us has ever seen and was ready for. And it's, again, propelled conversations and activism in a way that's frightening, but also beautiful. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Mm -hmm. I want to get into your story as let's let's progressively, you know, land on, you know, toward the end, we'll talk about this amazing cookbook, uh, which my wife, we got in the mail yesterday. And she was... just ecstatic. She just, she took it out and just held it to her chest. (laughs) Um, she's, she's been following you for longer than I have. And, um, we love to cook. We're vegan. We'll get into all that, um, as well here in a little bit, but your story is incredible too. You are the daughter, uh, the child of immigrants. I am the child of a Guatemalan immigrant Mm -hmm. that moved here when he was very young, when he was a child. Um, and it wasn't until later on in life that you figured out that, your parents were from or are from what is now known as North Korea, the northern part of Korea before it it split. Um, walk me through, because we could spend a long time going through, and I would love to, maybe another time we just spend all, like I love family history. Mm-hmm. I'm. That's one thing that I don't, there are a lot of great things about the United States of America. 
I'm not like this incredible patriot. I didn't grow up here. I've spent most of my life traveling the world. I don't feel at home here. I don't know how you feel because you've spent all your life here. Yes. Yeah, all your mm -hmm. life. I've spent uh, at this point somewhere between half and two thirds of my life here. A bunch was spent elsewhere. I don't feel at home here. So I'm not this like incredibly big patriot. But I do recognize the good things about this country. One of the terrible things about being a place where everybody has come to and uh, one of the yeah, one of the terrible things about that is that we have not, especially those of Cauc Caucasian persuasion, not good at knowing the history, appreciating the history, and, and kind of living in that history. Most of my friends that I uh, you know knew when I was younger or that even know now, they have no idea who they are, where they've come from, why they were named what they were named, mm -hmm. the struggles that they're grandparents and great-grandparents it took for them to get to where they are now. They don't know any of that. They just exist in the now. And I think that is how, that is, that is a, a, a step in the direction of a, of a wasted life, of a, of a, of a life that isn't fully aware of not just the past, but also what's happening all over, all around us, right? Knowing what happened in your, you know, in your grandparents' lives and what they went through in your father and your mother, that is so important for shaping who you are and also giving you a broader worldview, right? So having said that, give us, like walk us through some of the stuff that you found out later on in life about your uh, family's history that now has become an intricate part of who you are and has shaped how you live now. So I discovered when I was a little girl that there was something odd about my family's past. And it was because my grandmother could speak Japanese, which we all thought was really cool. Like my mom, um, or I should say my brother and I thought was so cool. And we always used to try and make her teach us Japanese and speak Japanese. Like, oh, grandma speaks Japanese. And, you know, she'd get through, you know, maybe a couple minutes of speaking Japanese before she would you know, kind of zip up. And when we started learning from her, she would often tell us, don't, don't speak Japanese in public. Mm. It's dangerous to speak Japanese. And we're like, why? Um, and we never really pulled on that thread too much. And later on in, I think, college, I was a little bit more curious about it. But again, I felt almost... Uh, uh, instinctive danger around the topic. So I just, I didn't really push it. And it wasn't until my mom like literally blurted out one day while we were eating sweet potatoes in her kitchen. Oh yeah, I was born in North Korea. And I was like, what, what? And you're, how old at this point? I was probably uh, in college or in law school, like very on later yeah. in life, you know? Yeah. Later and, than most kids figure out absolutely. where their parents have yeah, come from. Yeah, exactly. And I was kind of like, what are you talking about? And she said, oh, yeah, no, no, I was born in North Korea. I thought you knew. No, why would I know that <laughs> unless you told me? Um, and so that was when I discovered that my mother was born in North Korea. Now, at that time, I had always always sort of harbored the suspicion that my father was also from North Korea. But again, I had this very misguided and naive and, quite frankly, ignorant view of the topic, as in hmm. I would somehow be embarrassed if I found out that my dad was from North Korea. And if you remember, this was around 
you know, George Bush had called it the axis of evil. I think Seth Rogen had come out with a movie, you know, and it was just the butt of everyone's jokes. I remember I went to a party with some high school friends and they're like, oh, you're from Korea, but you're not from North Korea, are you? As if like somehow you know, if I were from North Korea, like I would be. Yeah, you're you know, like bad. Yeah, I'm like, Intrinsically I believe bad. in authoritarianism right. <laughs> or something. And so, you know, again, I wasn't strong enough or knowledgeable enough about my own family's history to counter that sort of inner dialogue that was happening. And so I never really broached the subject. But when my mom raised it in that fashion and then subsequently told me her you know, story of how her family escaped North Korea right during the Korean, you know, the beginning of the Korean War, then just sort of my own curiosity about my family's history sort of took over. Mm. And I then asked my dad for his story. And eventually it all sort of unraveled in this gorgeous, stunning way, Mm. revealing not just my family's history, but also revealing just how beautiful my mom and my dad are and all that they brought with them when they came to the United States. I recently had a similar, uh, yeah, a a similar experience. My, My dad's mom, my grandmother passed away. She was 97, lived this incredible life. And so I went back to upstate New York where they lived to for the um, memorial. And when my dad, I, I mentioned earlier, my dad came to the U.S. as, a, as an immigrant, um, undocumented at the time, you know, basically ran away from home. There was, a, mm-hmm. there was a civil war going on in Guatemala, and he didn't want to live there. And my, my grandfather, may he rest in peace, was um, very abusive, at, at the time, very, you know, it was not treating his family, his wife, my grandmother well. And so he ended up just leaving and flying to the States and stayed with uh, some distant relatives. Well, I had never met. I mean, I've, we, I left New York when I was younger. We moved to Guatemala for 10 years and then I traveled the world. I, didn't, I don't know that my dad's family really well because we left so early on and then I just kept traveling around. I had especially never met the family that took him in. Mm. And I met them for the first time. And it was, I mean, yeah, I was 37 at the time and just felt like, holy shit, how have I gone my whole life not knowing the family that is responsible for good and, you know, all the good, bad, and ugly for for raising my father and giving him a chance here before his family ended up coming over here and then they reunited. But, like, that just felt like such a huge huge moment, right? Where you find these things out. And maybe, maybe there's a a fortunate side to learning these things when we're adults. Mm -hmm. Because if we learn, you know, if you're, if you're four or five and you learn that your mother was born in what is now North Korea, like, okay, cool. When you're in law school and you're older and you know what that means, again, good and bad, at least what is societally bad if you're from North Korea, like, yeah, it hits you differently. How did you navigate? So, this is another thing. Nobody's control over where they're born, mm. right? You said it, but I think about this so often. I think about it in the in the the climate that we've that we have here in the U.S. over the last couple of years toward refugees, toward immigrants. Nobody has control over where they're born. Like it's a goddamn miracle that we're even born in the first place. Mm-hmm. Like the odds are trillions to one that sperm meets egg and boom, you and I come out. Like it's already a miracle that we're here. Nobody has. 
nobody has any say over whether they're born in Afghanistan or North Korea or in, you know, in nice suburban Chicago. <laughs> nobody has any, nobody has any control over that. Why would we ever hold that against anyone? Why would we ever let that uh, uh, cast a bad shadow on someone? And yet we do. And we've seen that so much over the last you know, especially the last few years, there's been a there's been a resurgence of this sort of attitude. But walk us through how you sort of navigated, you know, hear you know, hearing this news, finding out the story. You said it just sort of unraveled so beautifully. How, take us from that point to you becoming. I assume maybe proud is not the right word, but you're proud of who who you are and where you're from, right? Like we're proud of this. What was that journey like? Because I think that's so important to hear. I think that I wouldn't have been receptive to that story had I heard it earlier. Sure. And and the reason for that is because I know my father tried to tell me his story when I was much younger. And I'm so ashamed of how I reacted. And I'm also really worried about how much I wounded my father, mm. you know, with being so dismissive of something that's so personal and so precious. And I'm glad that later in life when he did once again, share his story for me. I was in a position to accept his story with love and and in that way, give him sort of a safe place for him to share that story. Um, I think that once I learned that my mother was from North Korea, then I went to my dad and tried to understand, okay, I know that there's something odd about my dad's story, because mm. my grandmother, the one who spoke Japanese, was my father's mother. And there was sort of this weird kind of shame, kind of, you know, shrouding my father's family's story. And ultimately, I discovered, kind of through bits and pieces, you know, there is a bit of a language barrier still between my father and me. Mm. Um, so, you know, through bits and pieces and kind of piecing it together, um, I learned that my father's father, my grandfather, worked for the Japanese Imperial Police Force during the occupation. And that is, in many people's view, a very shameful thing, yeah. right? And, uh, you know, we were basically, my family was considered traitors um, to Korea. And that is why my grandmother was able to speak Japanese. And that is why she was always admonishing me and my brother, don't speak Japanese in public, only do it at home, because it was deadly to be, you know, speaking Japanese at a certain point in Korea. That meant that you should essentially be killed for being a traitor to the country. And so that was what we discovered. My grandfather, he uh, escaped um, North Korea right before the close of World War II mm. because he knew if he stuck around, he would be killed. So he went to uh, near Seoul, South Korea, which is where his family lived. That's a whole other story. Uh, and eventually my grandmother and my father, who was a newborn baby, um, slipped past the 38th parallel to reunite. Wow. Yeah, so it was. it's a, a very scary, harrowing story. But these are things that I never bothered to learn until I was in a position where I could ask the questions carefully enough to elicit information that is quite frankly sensitive. Yeah. Yeah. Thinking back to your, you know, you, you talked about your grandfather that was, he was, were there traitorous intentions or what was the reason that, that, that happened in his life? Cause he eventually, again, he eventually escaped and like, what was the, what, what were the situation that he was in 
you know, that that had to take place. Do you know? Yeah. So my grandfather, um, he came from a wealthy family, actually, from the southern region of Korea. It was not South Korea at the time. It was just right. the southern, southern region, region of, yeah. of Korea at the time. My father's family were scholars. And in Korea, scholars are revered. And so they had, you know, money, they had land, they had all the things. And with that comes sometimes drama. Mm. My grandfather's mother, um, so my great grandmother, she committed suicide in mm. front of my grandfather mm. when she discovered that her husband, my great grandfather, had had an affair with a village woman and decided to take her on as a concubine, brought her home as a second wife. She couldn't take that. Um, my grandfather couldn't take that. He was very upset and he had sort of a nervous breakdown. This is when he was like 10 years old. And uh, obviously watching his mother, you know, commit suicide in front of him, you know, obviously traumatized yeah. him. Yeah. So he, um, you know, w was sent off to school with the hope that, okay, maybe we just send him away from home. He'll recover. Uh, he'll be, quote, normal and, you know, will be a functioning young man again. Unfortunately, that did not occur. Uh, a few years later, the school sent him back saying, we can't. He's a handful. We can't handle him anymore. And my great-grandfather, his father, thought, okay, fine. Well, if he can't stick around at school, then we'll just marry him off to a wealthy family. So when he got back from middle school, he's 13 years old, and his father greets him with, there's a young woman. She's in the bedroom next door to yours, and she's going to be your wife tomorrow. And my grandfather said, "Hex no. Um, and that night, you know, uh, in the dead of night, he packed up what he could and he ran away from home. He wow. walked through the Mebong Mountains and he got to the northern region of Korea. And he decided to get a job as like a coal miner and uh, realized that wasn't going to really be what he wanted in life. Um, it wasn't paying very well. And he did have a very expensive education, right? His father had sent him to one of the best schools in Korea at the time. And so he decided to use his smarts to get the best job he could, which was with the Japanese police force. So he was, you know, like 14, 15 years old. He's, yeah. he's a little boy, basically. Um, and that's really what started things off. So there was no intention other than I don't want to starve. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like I would like to have a good living. And sure, there must have been some thought given to what does this mean about who I am as a countryman, as a Korean. Um, but I think the exigencies at that time you know, sort of dictated his actions. I am not excusing them, by the way. My grandfather, too, was not a good man. Mm. He was not a nice man. And I think my father's story and his trauma is wrapped up in the kind of man my grandfather was. But that's the explanation that I was given, and it's the one that I sort of share when people ask. Well, thank you for sharing that. I mean, these are... Family is so complicated. Yes. It's so heavy. It's beautiful. Um, I thank you for sharing that because I think it's important for us to realize how it's important for us to realize how complicated things are and how we should have grace for ourselves and for our those that have come before mm -hmm. us. You know, you are telling a version of that story that you've heard. You don't know all the details. You're also being very explicit, not excusing 
the people in this, you know, that you just shared about that, you know, for the things that they did and for the ways that they lived and the, the things they, the, 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 the way they acted. And that to me is the most beautiful thing about life because that doesn't excuse us being shitty today, but it does, it's a reminder to me that we should all stay off our high horses. <laughs> we should walk around with so much humility if we are making it in life, if we are good people, if we are cultivating goodness and putting love in the world and putting out, you know, trying to make a difference, that is a privilege. And, you know, one terrible mistake, one one terrible decision, and we could destroy all of that, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. We we have to walk around very circumspectly. Um, in our in knowing our history gives us a peek into what those that have gone before us have done and how easy it is to become like that. Just so important for us to know these stories and to share them and to tell them. I mean, I, I'm, I'm just a big advocate for knowing the story and then retelling it as best as we can, um, both as an encouragement, but also a warning of what could happen, what has happened, what could happen if we don't watch ourselves and if we don't, you know, carefully, you know, take care of who we are and our heritage and all that. Well, I think for me, my father and I always had sort of a tense relationship and I always just assumed, oh, he's just being a typical Korean dad. We've got language barriers. He comes from a school of thought where you're not allowed to be emotional. Um, you have to repress all your feelings. Everything's discipline, 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 and no affection, no showing of pride. And I thought it was very toxic. You know, I always thought my dad was just not a good dad. It's like, you know, he's not like what you see on TV. I want, you know, the Seaver family in my house, <laughs> not the yeah. Lee family. And I think now at 42 years old, I have a much better appreciation of why my dad is the way that he is, flaws and all. Mm -hmm. And I think that what I've learned, you know, since 2016 is sometimes if you want to bring out the best in people, you have to understand what brings out the worst in them as well. And the only way to understand that is to pick apart their stories, figure out how did they become who they are and why are they making these choices that make no sense on the outside? Because you'll often find that if you do the work, that there is a path, there's a point that leads to another point, that leads to another point, that ultimately leads to this otherwise completely irrational decision. And I feel like that's what we're seeing every single day. When we're talking about people who refuse to wear masks, who don't take vaccines, who believe that COVID is you know, someone's imagination, it's so irrational to you and me sitting here today. But I'll bet if we do the work to dig behind it, you know, and work backwards, at some point you'll understand, okay, this is where it started. And sometimes you got to do that, go all the way back to that point to maybe veer the path a little bit so that they're now on the same page. I could not agree more. There was so that's a, what you just shared in the last 45 seconds, a gold mine. I completely agree that that's what's needed. And I know why it doesn't happen mm. because it's, hard fucking work. Yeah. Like what you just described means that we are going to forego certain personal uh, pleasures and time away and like time bedging out in front of the TV to whatever, whatever the case may be to get to know people because that doesn't happen. 
you're you're getting to do it on a big scale in front of people and a camera and you're telling these stories while you're making food and it's like really you know there's the, again no doubt in my mind why your platform has grown but now take that and do like one-on-one with people and it's a lot easier for me just to see them at that you know literally the other day in Dallas 12:29 p.m. they're waiting for JFK to resurrect <laughs> and become Trump's like I was, I saw these videos the other day. I was getting physically sick to my stomach because I was like, I can understand why some people believe some of the things they believe. Some, you know, in in relation to a lot of things that have happened last. I, I can even understand, not toward the end of the Trump presidency, but at the beginning, I was like, okay, you couldn't hand me a, you couldn't pay me a suitcase full of cash to vote for this guy. Nothing, zero, you can't do it. But I understand why some people did it. Waiting for someone to resurrect decades later, like what, how do you get to that place? There's a, there's a reason, there's a thread. You're hundred percent right. If I was to sit down with somebody and I was at that rally waiting for someone to come back 30 years later to be the vice president to Donald Trump and they're going to take over the white house. You can thread that all the way back to when it was, somebody hurt them. Mm-hmm. Somebody told them something was going to happen and then it didn't. Something didn't happen the way that it was supposed to. They were lied to by ex council person or mayor or this or that. Like, there's always a reason. I mean, some of it is just like dumb and it's stupid, but that is the hard work that I'm trying to do. I know you're trying to do it, and that I think we all need to do. I mean, it's the only way that this this country in particular, the one we live in and the one we're talking about right now, it's the only way we survive and don't literally fall apart in the next few years. I agree. I don't know how we're not falling apart right now. I mean, our former president still hasn't conceded. There are millions of people that have still not conceded along with him. There were very important elections a couple days ago here in the US. Nobody that has been screaming fraud for the last few months screamed fraud when their guy won, right? Like there's just so much cognitive dissonance. There's so much division and it is going to take us, I mean, (laughs) Everybody go buy the Korean vegan cookbook and cook some food and invite your neighbor over that might still have a Trump flag or a fuck Biden flag or whatever flag, like invite them over and begin to unravel that story because you're going to, I think enough time spent, not always, no promises, no guarantees, but enough time spent, you can usually find where that all began. Even if you don't find where it all began, I think you can find at least some points of connection um a couple of things when i first started the korean vegan it was just like a recipe blog it's right a blog, right it was yeah. just a blog. here's how to make this right in 2016 the election happened and you know i spent two weeks curled up in my bathtub crying because i thought that i used to say this to my husband i was like america just bitch slapped me across the face that's yeah. that's what happened right this country that i loved and i still love but this country that i loved completely betrayed me. That's mm. how I felt. And then a few months after that, I, I am very solution oriented. I you give me a problem. I want to see how do I get to the end of that problem? How do I fix that problem? So I figure out what I want, the problem solved, and then I work my way backwards from that. 
And I realized that me screaming at people, me crying in the bathtub, or even me, you know, going and walking in protests or using my lawyer skills or in that way trying to effectuate change was actually not the best use of my time. The best use of my time and my skills was to try and figure out what the heck, why are there 50% of this country sees things so differently and also so misunderstands my story. Mm. And so I was like, fine, if they misunderstand my story, I got to get them to listen to the story of the immigrant in the United States. And then how do I get them to listen? Well, give them some food. Mm. Um, You know, like that's usually what gets people to come to your dinner table. Hey, we're all going to eat. We all have to eat in order to survive. Why not make it delicious and nutritious? And then while you're here, I'm going to make you listen to something about what it's like growing up and be a person of color in the United States. And so that was sort of kind of what I had come up with. But at that time, I think I was still very naive about how hard it would be and how angry I would get along that process, how hurt I would continue to be at people who refused to listen or refused to see things the way that I did. And I also did not expect to have family members who would vote for Trump and what that would mean and the incredibly hard work it takes to sit down at a table with them and to have these conversations. That last part. 100%. It's it's one thing when you look at the country, right? Half the country, people that you don't know. Yeah, you see some on videos and you see the percentages on, you know, on the news at night. But to a certain extent, they don't matter. You don't know them. But when family, Mm -hmm. not just the first time, but the second time. Yes. I have never. I love my family. I love my parents. I love I'm one of 12 kids. So I have lots of siblings, a lot of love to go around. Love them all. I would be a fool and a liar if I didn't admit that I have never worked so hard in my life to keep loving them over the past few years. And that sucks so badly that I would even have to say that. Mm-hmm. That my and again, at the end of the day, I love them no matter what. But just the all the all the things that happen when you love someone, right? When that, when I still have you know family members that won't get vaccinated mm-hmm. because and it, it trickles back to their allegiance to certain ideologies and certain politicians and certain this and certain that it's really hard and when i can't go visit some of them because they refuse to do certain things and i say and i say if you do this this thing that works it's it works half the fucking planet is vaccinated at this point three and a half There's been like six billion shots in arms, three and a half billion fully vaccinated, something like that. Crazy billions. It's safe. It's good. It's effective. It works. And then I say, please do this so we can hang. Mm -hmm. And they say, and I'm being extra flipping right now, but like when they're like, nah, nah, I think we're going to stay with how we feel about this. Like that hurts. And some days I don't know how to move forward. Mm -hmm. I don't know what to do because, you know, everybody around me says, well, you can't let that, you can't let that, you know, get in the way. You got to keep loving that they're your family, this, that. And I'm like, yeah, I know that I conceptually, even in my heart, I know that, but that is, but nothing else in my entire life has made it harder for me to love certain people than even the Trump thing. That was less of a hit 
than what we're currently going through. And I'm just like, how is it possible that we are here? How is it possible that your allegiance to an ideology is stronger than your love for people that have been there for you, will be there for you in the future, they're your blood, they take a bullet for you, and yet this keeping up a charade, a facade, I don't know what you're trying, that's more important. Like, it's really hard. It is hard. And I would say a couple of things, um, you know, not to talk about love, but I mean, talk away. I mean, love, you know, people think love is something that, you know, is so powerful that you can take it for granted. And in some ways that that is one of the beautiful things about love is, is that by definition, it is strong. It bends it, you know, it doesn't break all of those things, but one who loves doesn't take it for granted. Mm. And another thing is love is a choice. I always say this, it's not a feeling, no. it's not a state of being, it is a choice that you make every single day. And so when it involves two people and one decides to choose an ideology over the person that they purport to love, then that person also has a choice. Do I decide to react in kind or do I decide that my love is stronger than that? And I think that, Ultimately, where compassion sort of fits into this is that it can be a very strong supporter of love and a component of that. So I have had those same conversations with my family members who refuse to get vaccinated, who I cannot see. I have not seen in two years because of that. And it makes, you know, planning Thanksgiving holidays really awkward, you know, really, really awkward. And it makes me cry. The last conversation I had with them, we both started crying, you know, because we love each other a lot. But we're both very stubborn. I believe I'm on the right side here, um, but he you doesn't. Are. Yeah, I, I, I believe I'm on the right side of a lot of things. Sure. But when he started crying about not being able to see us because mm. he so believes in what he thinks is right, and when he started crying about why he voted for Trump, it was hard. I mean, I'm not going to suppress this, the compassion that immediately comes as a result yeah. of that. Because yeah. I think that there's something important about that compassion because it's what fueled our ability to have a conversation about this very, very hard thing in a very honest way. And if we don't have those conversations, we're just going to continue to see what's happening in the news every single day for the rest of our lives until this country falls apart or we burn up in a fireball because of climate change. One or the other. Yeah. No, I think that that's an important point. I, I, I do want to move on, not because there's not a million more things to talk about, but we have we, we can't spend all day. <laughs> you have a book reading to get to tonight, right? And some other meetings. Yes. Um, yeah, that has happened to me multiple times. I'm talking with someone. They're not budging. I'm not budging. And then I and then we had this moment where it's like I, I remember they show me or I remember this is not a bad person. Yeah. This is not a person who wants to harm me or themselves. They love themselves. They love their neighbors. They love their country. They love their whatever. They're good people that have so, just as I have, and again, I think that I'm on the right side of this. I think history also stands with me on that, on this particular issue. But they so, they're doing it because they believe that's the right thing to do. They're not doing it to be vindictive or mean or hateful. And they would and they would fall 
the fuck apart if I died because they gave me the virus, right? Like it's yes. not, they wouldn't like, they wouldn't be like, ah, you know, they're not evil. And I've had to constantly remind myself that as an Enneagram eight who wants to fix everything and challenges all these problems and wants to, will not stop until the solution is found and we go after it. And frankly, most of the time doesn't in my own health, doesn't care who he mows over to get to fixing the problem. Right. I have to remember that these people, friends, family, and otherwise, most of them good people that are just so stuck in their ideologies and their belief system that they would forego this potentially life-saving to them. It's, it is life-saving, but potentially life-saving to them vaccine to, you know, continue believing what they believe. Mm. That has helped me. I mean, honestly, that's saved relationships over the last couple of years. Like there are people that I, other, if I didn't feel that, I would just cut them out. I don't need that negative energy in my life. Well, but these are people worth fighting for. And who knows? They might come around at some point. And be your best allies. Yeah. And, and what would happen if you decided to just cut them all out? What if we all decided to do oh, that? Oh, yeah. It's not the way. Mm -hmm. It's rarely the way. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you get that toxic person in your life. And most of the time, we feel that instinct to cut out. And it's like, no, that's dumb. That's so stupid. These are humans that are beautiful and amazing and complex. And they have histories. And they have good and bad. And they've been abused. And they have trauma. And we have to consider all that when we're making these decisions. Um, partner at a law firm, trial lawyer, <laughs> turned vegan content creator. We could obviously spend a lot of time talking about your career as a lawyer, but, you know, add in, in, add in however much you want to about that. But talk about the last few years, really, where you have been, I mean, for a while, you've been doing multiple jobs, right? Because you didn't, you weren't winding down your law career until recently, and, and you're platform was blowing up. Very complex situation to be in. I'm sure at times you maybe wanted to throw in the towel and just end <laughs> it all. Um, yeah, but how did how did that happen? I mean, take us back to 2016, right? This journey began, you weren't a content creator before you were vegan, right? No. It happened as a result of that. Correct. So you're a trial lawyer. I, I imagine from what, maybe this is stereotype, maybe it's true. I've never been a lawyer, but hard life especially in a big city like Chicago, right? And you're, were you partner? Or you were not partner. Not at the time no. I started. I think 2016. You're trying to make partner. No, no, no. I, I had made partner. No, okay. you're right. I was partner at that time. Either way, you're trying to keep partner. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, there's just so much going on. There's lots of demands on you. I, I imagine being a trial lawyer, that's also just a whole, you're not sitting, you know, you're not looking at documents and notarizing shit and like, make, you know, <laughs> looking for, no, you're a trial lawyer, right? Big career, lots going on. Walk us through you deciding to become vegan, which is a big step for anybody, trial lawyer or not. But then, yeah, this whole, I mean, and a lot of it was goes back to your now husband and sort of navigating that relationship. And he had tried it out first. And you're like, well, let me try it out. I want to keep the peace here, mm -hmm. right? So walk through that, that sort of uh, period in 2016 when you transitioned to become vegan and then started, and then why make content about it? Why talk to other people about it? Yeah. 
So my uh, then boyfriend, now husband, he adopted a plant-based diet in January, largely for health reasons. His father had just passed away from a host of autoimmune diseases, and that really sparked an interest in him to learn more about what is the best way to fuel my body to ensure that I also don't get riddled with these types of illnesses in the future. That led him to reading about a plant-based diet, and he decided, hey, I'm going to do this. Mm. We had only been dating about a year at that time. And so our relationship was still a little fragile. And for me and for a lot of people, I think cooking and sharing food, eating food together is a way of developing intimacy. Mm -hmm. My husband and I, again, my boyfriend at that time, we were saddled with intimacy issues. Like we weren't good at it, like each of us, you know? And so, I needed all the help I could get. And so when he decided he was going to go vegan, I was like, so you're going to take that away from us? Like, I don't think you understand like how much impact that's going to have on our ability to continue developing as a couple. I could see it, but I don't think he did at Mm. the time. So I really had a choice. I could decide to just keep doing what I'm doing, eating my regular food, or I could join him. And there was a lot of tension. We fought about it. We argued about it a lot. And, you know, I was totally not sold at the time on the impact of, you know, a non-vegan diet on the planet and, you know, on my body. But ultimately, I decided, you know, what's the worst that can happen? I could try it for a couple of weeks. And, you know, if I hate it, I don't have to stick with it. Now, pause real quickly. How... how how, how did you feel physically at this time? So, right, like, how were you physically, emotionally? What was your relationship with food at that time um, before you go into the two weeks that yeah. when you gave it a shot? I was a paleo girl. So I was very into low. I was the opposite of vegan, yeah, basically. Literally. Yeah, I was yeah. like, I don't believe in carbs. And I believe in animal protein. I believe in high fat. Um, high protein, low carb diets. Uh, I had been doing that for a few years. And so uh, that's why I thought my husband was just uneducated. <laughs> I was like, he doesn't know what he's talking about. I know what I'm talking about. And, you know, I know so much more about nutrition and, you know, healthy eating than he possibly could. I mean, this guy's just been eating nothing but butter noodles his whole life. What does he know, you know? So that's what I thought. And of course, you know, he very, you know, strategically made me watch all these movies with him, you know, Forks Over Knives, oh, Food yes. Inc., all yeah. the all the movies. And Cowspiracy. Cowspiracy. And at that point, it started to infiltrate, you know. I was open to the possibility that maybe I was wrong, or at the very least, the information that had been provided to me was incomplete up until that point certainly with regard to climate change, something that I really never paid attention to because I was that typical, I'm a professional woman. I got more important things to worry about than recycling, you know, and uh, very arrogant. And so when I started watching these movies and at the same time feeling some sort of way about not wanting to kind of lose the momentum of our growing relationship, and I was like, fine, I'll just give it a try. And I did. I gave it a try for a couple weeks. Um, during that time, my father was diagnosed with prostate cancer. And, you know, it was during that time that I had literally just, you know, seen Forks Over Knives where they talked about East Asian men and their propensity to get prostate cancer because of eating red meat mm, wow. after a, a diet largely of vegetables, you know. I just felt like it was all sort of converging in a very cosmic way to kind of push me over the edge. And after that, I decided to stop eating meat. 
couple of weeks later, the dairy and the eggs followed, and then I started the Korean vegan. So our journey, I just want to give a little context here before we go back and forth on the vegan stuff. Um, oddly enough, around the same time, uh, autumn of 2015, we became vegetarian. Mm -hmm. We had never been big fans of, we were never big meat people, but we ate meat when meat was on the menu, right? We didn't eat it every day, that's for sure, but we ate it multiple times a week. And for the two years before that, from 2013 to 2015, we had committed to buying, we had bought into what I think is bullshit lie for the most part about, okay, if you're going to consume animal products, consume these animal products, mm -hmm. right? All the lies on the labels, uh, pasture raised, right? And, and free range and cage free. Cage free is one of the worst ones. I mean, cage free, like of all the meats, chickens are treated the worst. Um, out of any out of any animals, they are treated so horribly. It's disgusting. I will never ever, even if I was to choose to go back to meat someday, which I don't think I ever will, I would never touch chicken ever again because the industry is so monumentally fucked up. Again, especially I think I think most mostly to or I guess in the most way toward uh, chickens, but whatever. So we had started to look at. We at least started to pay attention to, you know, we're going to spend more money. I remember the the year before going vegetarian, we had we lived just outside of Seattle at the time, and we found this farmer that had raised these cows, right? And he only had like ten of them, right? So you know they're out there like running around and prancing, and they're so happy and this and that, and they've all got names and blah blah blah. And so we you know we bought a cow with like three friends and split it up, and we all got our meat, and we felt really good about ourselves that this meat that we were now eating was. And now it just, it seems so backward now, years removed from that. It's like, yeah, Nick, you should have stopped with this cow has a name and it's happy. <laughs> what the hell are you doing? Uh, that makes it better now that you're eating it. Um, but I, I understand the hoops that you have to jump through to sort of stay, you know, you know, eating these things and consuming these, these products. Anyway, we got to vegetarian and then it wasn't until, I guess we're over a year now and I have wife, three kids. My son was born after we became vegetarian, so he's never had meat in his life. Um, and the girls, again, they were babies. They were little. They're all pretty close to each other. And so we, uh, yeah, it's, at some point, we kind of held on to dairy products. We were already, we had already switched to, you know, uh, plant-based milk, right, for cereal occasionally, whatever. And then we would do other plant-based dairy stuff. The one thing we were holding on to, we just loved a good charcuterie board every once in a while, mm. right? Like good, like aged cheeses. And anyway, just got to a point like a year and a half ago where, yeah, we were like, this is stupid. We've been, we've been teeter-tottering on this for so long. And one of the, one of the people that I think that actually pushed us over, do you know Ed Winters? He's yes. in the UK. Mm -hmm. The, um, mm -hmm. yeah, Earthling Ed is mm -hmm. his. And um, I had him on the podcast, I guess it was a little bit after we became vegan but his, uh, he has a he has great content and a great argument for uh, vegetarian is actually, in some ways, worse for the the environment and for animals because it's one thing if you just kill an animal right, put them out of their misery and you eat them, but a lot of the things that we consume in a vegetarian heavy lifestyle, you're you're torturing this animal for their entire life, whether it's you know dairy products or otherwise, right? You're torturing. I mean, just eggs. 
right? If you want, if okay, we still eat eggs. Well, this this tortured chicken is just giving eggs after eggs way more than it was ever meant to produce. And so we uh, made the switch. I just wanted to give a little bit of that context because there's some similarities there. There was a little bit of a, but we had our, we had our struggle. By the time we got to becoming, going from vegetarian to vegan, it was no problem. Like we literally just, it was like a switch, mm. shut it off. But that's only because we had five years of training. We had those weeks of, those two weeks of just, yeah, it was hard. It was a little hard at first because we're also big like party throwers and meal makers for people. And we thought, man, we are shooting ourselves in the foot. We're not, we're not going to, because there, there weren't, there wasn't a lot of this, this stuff, even five, six years ago. There weren't a lot of, I mean, you were starting back then. I didn't know about you back then, but it almost seemed like we were not going to be popular party throwers anymore, <laughs> right? Because you're cutting out all the good stuff, right? We had had huge parties before. We did all these like amazing, we had taco nights and this and that. And we obviously, there's a lot of meat in those meals. Um, and then that was all gone. Um, anyway, there's some context for sort of some of our journey. 2016, you have a couple weeks of, you know, back and forth and then you commit. What happened after that? And how did you begin to make you know, this, how did you begin to make, say like, Hey, we're going to, I'm going to not only cook this way and eat this way and live this way. We're gonna make content about it. So I think one of the things that came up during our arguments about veganism, you know, it was me sort of at first just being very condescending and being like, my husband doesn't know what he's talking about. He doesn't know what healthy means and, and all of that. But there was also this undercurrent of, okay, my husband's white and I'm not. And he doesn't know what being Korean means sure. and what Korean food means to me. And in my head, I thought it's not possible to be vegan and Korean at the same time and how easy it is and convenient it is for him to you know, ask me to give up my Koreanness without understanding what that actually is. So there was a little bit of that sort of tension kind of running through our arguments. And when I finally decided all right, I'm going to do this. I'm going to go plant-based. What I wanted to do was to prove to myself that I am not going to give up my Koreanness. Right. I refuse to do that. I'm going to continue eating Korean food, even if it's plant-based. And so that's why I started the Korean Vegan, because I wanted to prove to myself that I could do that. I could veganize all the foods that I had grown up eating. And I started sharing it on social media again because he told me to. <laughs> he was basically like, you're the Korean vegan. You should start a YouTube channel and Amazing. just share your recipes. And, um, you know, when someone gives me a good idea, I execute on it. So I had a YouTube channel, an Instagram, and a Facebook that night called The Korean Vegan. And I started sharing my recipes, my photos, and my videos. And, you know, like I said earlier, it was just a recipe catalog for about a year. And then the election happened. And in 2017, um, the content changed pretty dramatically. Going back just a little bit, when I think of, I love all Asian food. It's my favorite genre of food. I've spent a lot of time in India. I love Indian food. I love... I love Korean food. I love Thai food. I could eat every day. I mean, I, I love I love it all. But when you think of it, and so now being years into this journey, you kind of see, no, it's 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 maybe not easy, but you can find really good food that is vegan and also Asian, right? But at first you don't think that because when you think of Korean food, right? Most people, if you ask your average like white American and you say, Have you ever had Korean food? Oh, yeah, I went to a Korean barbecue, mm -hmm. right? 
And so they think meat and like, and even if there's not meat, like fish sauces in it, right? Like, like there's just meat and, and, and animal products everywhere. Did you get, um, what was, I'm sure you got some pushback from other Koreans. Yes. Where they were saying, stop, like you are misrepresenting our cuisine. Yes. Stop doing that. What, did you get that from friends, family, complete strangers? And how did you process through that? Because you're you're beginning to find out, and we have a whole huge thick cookbook here full of, you know, pr as proof that you don't ever have to have animal products. You can still cook legit Korean food. But how did you process through that? How did you did that? Did you ever feel like quitting uh, because of that, or how did you, how did you respond to them? So, you know, it's easier with a family member to be like, well, let me talk you through this. Maybe not easier. Uh, but with a stranger on the internet, like part of you just wants to be like, fuck you, I'm doing this. I'm literally doing it. I'm showing you that it's possible. And you're telling me that it's not. And then I'm hurting our heritage. How did you work through that? In the beginning, I think I was a little bit unsure. My personality, however, is once I commit to doing something, I kind of go all in. And I had committed at that point. I had committed to a plant-based lifestyle and I was I was not going to, going to go back, especially once I had opened myself to really learning about what happened to the animals, like what yeah. you said about the chickens. I remember the first time I was tempted to eat a chicken sandwich, the first thing I thought about was the chickens in the cages. And I was like, never, Done. never again. Done. Like, literally yeah. never again. And so I had committed. And, and then it was just a matter of being open to feedback you know, certainly open to feedback. I wanted to make sure that what I was doing was still respectful and still honored, you know, Korean culture and Korean cuisine. So not doing it in a way that was like, you know, I'm going to hack my way through Korean food and sure. veganize it. Like I didn't want it to be glib or to be like, you know, I'm just doing this so that I can have a successful blog. I wanted to do it in an honest way. And so that always brought me back to my family. I think that in the beginning, they were like, this kimchi isn't really kimchi because it doesn't have sure. fish sauce, you yeah, know, yeah. Um, or this tteokbokki is mm, whatever because it doesn't have, you know, prugogi in it or something like that. But over time, as I spent more time with them, asking them questions that, quite frankly, I never would have asked them had I not gone vegan. Like, hey, why do you cut the kimchi like this? Or why do you pull it apart like this? Why do you bend the leaves around each other at the end? How long do you have to do this? These are things I never would have asked because quite frankly, I never would have had to, right? Because I didn't need to veganize anything. I didn't need to come up with my own recipes. Or I would never have asked about, well, how did you learn how to do this? What did your mom tell you? What do you miss most about your mother? These are the stories that come out of learning how to make foods from your parents, from your grandparents, from your relatives. And because I undertook that exercise, in many ways, I have sort of armed myself with a bulletproof argument as to mm -hmm. why you absolutely can retain your roots, can stay connected with your cultural identity, even if you decide, I'm not going to eat animals anymore. And this can happen. The one thing I love about this is you're obviously focusing on your heritage. It's the Korean vegan. But I hope that out of this, you are going to give other content creators and chefs the 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 hope the hope and the push off the edge to do the same thing for theirs. Because there are so many. I mean, I love um I've loved how 
a lot of, I mean, when you think of Southern food here in the U.S., mm-hmm. right? It's all meat. It's all grease. It's all bacon. It's all fried chicken. It's mac and cheese, this and that and the other. And yet there's this whole new wave of people that are cooking soul food that is plant-based. And if you, if your average, you know, Tennessean or Kentuckian or Alabama, like if they didn't know that that was plant-based, they would never second guess it. It tastes exactly like it. I've had it. It tastes so good. Right. And so I'm hoping that we get more of this in the future because it's needed. Like I do know at least from what I've studied and I've talked to a lot of climate scientists and stuff about this, if everyone went vegan in the world, it still wouldn't put that big of a dent. Mm-hmm. That's not the biggest problem we have. There's so much more with, with, you know, f- with different fuels and energies and different things that we need to really tackle that are really fucking up the climate at an exponential rate. But this still has something to do with it. Like the food that we eat and how we make it and how we grow things and how we raise things, it does have, it's, it's a huge thing and it can only benefit the world to get more and more people thinking about eating a plant-based diet. If you could put a percentage on, there are obviously multiple reasons to become vegan. And you've mentioned multiple different ones. This might be a stupid question, but I just thought about it because I was thinking about it myself. Like, could you put a percentage on why you're doing it? Mm -hmm. Like, in other words, like, is it more climate or animal cruelty or do you feel better? Like, what, what, what are the reasons? Could you pie chart what it looks like for you to be vegan? I don't think so. And I here's why. I used to think so. I used to think, oh, yeah, I can answer that question. You know, it's like 10% health, you know, I don't know, 70% the animals and, and the rest the climate. Yeah. But I don't think that that's a really productive way of looking at it from my sure. perspective. Because a lot of people ask me that question, and I've seen it all over on Twitter. This I'm for the animals, or I'm for the planet. I'm vegan for health, right? Like, as if there are only really three categories of compassion that matter in this world. Yeah. And, and what a shame it is that that's the way some people like to think of it. I, I think I had this wonderful meeting with Chungwan Sinim. She is the Buddhist monk in South Korea. She, you know, people wrote, wrote about her in the New York Times. She was you know, the, the season opener for season three in the chef's table, and she's totally vegan. Mm. And she also creates some of the most exquisite food in the world. And so all of these famous, you know, restaurateurs, you know, Eric Repair, Jeff Gordon Air, they're all going over to her to eat her food. And I was so excited. I was like, wow, a Korean vegan is on chef's table, is being written up in the New York Times. I got to go hang out with her. I want to meet her. So for my birthday, my sister-in-law and her mother arranged for me to visit with Chungwan Sanyim in Korea in 2019. Amazing. It was incredible. And I got to meet her and I pull up my phone and I'm like, look at my Instagram. I'm the Korean vegan. I'm showing people that you can veganize Korean food. And she's very nice, but you could tell she was kind of like, sort of amused by the whole thing. And ultimately what she tells me is, I don't live by a label. I don't think of myself as vegan, not vegan. What even is that? Yeah. She's like, my life is simply about doing the least amount of harm on this planet Hell while yeah. I'm alive. Yeah. And that means that I'm not gonna eat animals, you know? So good. And so it's like, why not just view life as just trying to do the least amount of harm or put another way, trying to do the most amount of good while you're still alive. And for me, that means not eating animal products for a variety of different reasons to try and like you said, like you said, pie chart it. I think what it does is it diminishes the whole 
which is that compassion, which is so much greater than the sum of its parts, is what drives me to do the things that I do. As I was asking that question, I thought about what you just said. Because I've thought about it many times. I am, I'm very, like our family is very focused on climate issues. And we're vegan. And we worry about the clothes that we wear. Where do we get them from? Um, all these things, right? We're teaching our kids about, you know, uh, uh, you know, the, the different kids in their classroom, whether it's they're from a different country or they have a different sexual sexual preference, like whatever. We're teaching all these things, right? And if I was to, it would be hard slash impossible and slash not helpful to like preface who I am and all the things that I care about, right? Each and every time somebody says, what are you about, right? It just doesn't make sense because you're very right. Like my goal in life is to leave the planet better than I found it. And what that implies is a million things are going to change in, in my life, throughout my life that, are, that I believe are helping me hit that goal. And one of the things that I hope sticks is never touching an animal product ever again, never consuming one, because I believe that is doing harm to the planet. I believe that is not good. Um, and I believe that if I, if I stop doing that and if all the people that think, what, you know, what difference am I going to make if I just do that? It's not going to make much of a difference. I'm like, well, yeah, but if 5 million people, mm -hmm. if 10 million people said that, we could make a hell of a difference, right? And so wonderful answer. Wonderful answer. Like, yeah, I'm not going to do that. Sure. I think you could. If I was like, no, give me a percentage. You probably <laughs> could. You did sort of like throw out a percentage. But that's so unhelpful. It's just with let's give a damn, all I've been about is trying to get people to realize that there, there are a million different ways to give a damn. Yes. And that you need to figure out what's good for you. I am so – that's why I have all kinds of people on, including – you know, cookbook, you know, <laughs> makers and like, because I believe there are so many different ways to do it. And I'm not, God forbid, I ever tell people how to do it. If you ask me and you present your situation, your circumstance, cool. I might be able to guide you a little bit, but I'm not going to tell you how to do it. You've got to figure that out because it takes all of us doing the hard work of figuring it out for this world to ever get better. I think there are different kinds of activism and we need all kinds of activism to do exactly what you said, which is to leave this planet a better place than when you came into it. And I love what you described about how you're trying to teach your children about being more accepting and, and being more mindful of all the different kinds of things that are out there. And I think that when you label yourself as I'm vegan for the animals or I'm vegan for the planet or I'm vegan for health, then, well, what about I'm vegan for gay rights? I'm vegan for BLM. I'm vegan for all of these other things because <laughs> human beings are animals too yes, and are. are absolutely in need of compassion and activism. I'm not saying that animals aren't, you know, a voice that have just basically not been heard by the vast majority of right. human population and history. But I'm, I worry sometimes that by being too quick to label and categorize ourselves, we are forgetting what we are. You know, we're humans. That's incredible. I do want to talk about this cookbook that's in front of me. It's stunning. It really is. I'm not just blowing smoke. Like, it really, really is good. Thank it is... The and you took all the photos. Yes, that's that's insane too because they're <laughs> they look like they were you know they look like 
you flew in some amazing photographer <laughs> to take these photos. Thank you. Um, talk about talk about the cookbook and why how it came to fruition and why people should get it. And I'm telling people they should get it. <laughs> um, but why should people get it? Well, first of all, the recipes are really good. And I will say, you know, as a debut cookbook author and this being my first one. Uh, New York Times bestselling, like <laughs> almost instantly, right? Yes. Like almost immediately, New York Times bestseller. That's insane as a debut author cookbook maker. <laughs> so with that said, I was very nervous you know, for people to try my recipes. I know that people who are unfamiliar with Korean cuisine might find it a little bit challenging at first. You know, what is gochukaru? I don't know what gochujang is, you know. But I have since seen thousands of people trying my recipes and being successful at it. That is so gratifying, but it proves to me these recipes are good. You can make them. You can make them in your homes. Takes a little bit of understanding at first to know what these ingredients are, but we've got an you know, incredible pantry section in the book that describes very much in detail exactly what you need in order to create these recipes in your home. So that's number one. Number two, this cookbook is very much an extension of my social media and what makes my social media a little bit different than your average, you know, cooking blog, yeah, sure. which is, it is, you know, rife with stories about my family. You know, you see the pictures of my dad when he was in Vietnam. You see the pictures when my mom just graduated from nursing school in Korea. You know, the pictures of my grandparents, um, my grandmother when her, you know, husband had just passed away and she became a single mother and, you know, right after the war. So all of these things are in the cookbook. So you get a heavy dose of you know, storytelling along with the foods that sort of kind of grew out of my childhood. So it's all kind of wrapped into this book and, of course, with my photographs. And, you know, I like to think that it's it's different. And I think that's one of the reasons it's doing very well right now. As I was um, just thinking about our forthcoming conversation yesterday, I was thinking, is there anybody else that is doing what you're doing in the way that you're doing it. And I honestly couldn't come up with anybody. I, I did think about, do you know who Maddie Matheson is? Mm -mm. He's a chef based in Canada. This very large, gregarious, funny guy that wears like crazy clothes and he's tatted up and he has a real high-pitched voice. And he has made this whole brand. And he's obviously, he's the opposite of you and me in that almost everything he does includes just tons and tons of meat. But I follow Maddie because he's just so fun and funny, and he tells, he, he, the reason I associated you, but also didn't, is that he is a great storyteller and he does bring all of his life into his cooking. It's not just, here's a recipe, here's the food I'm making, and see you next time. Mm -hmm. It's very much a storytelling platform, but never once have I watched a Maddie Matheson video and wanted to cry or <laughs> did cry. Um, it's so special. It's It really is. Your platform is so special because, you know, you're making a, a drink or a food and, and and then all of a sudden in 60 seconds, you tell this story about your, your hardship or divorce or something Anthony said, like you're doing it. It's, it's such a unique, incredible platform. Again, I've said it multiple times. I'm not trying to dote too hard on you, but like there's no, there's no wonder in my mind why your platform has grown. And I really appreciate how you have uniquely incorporated storytelling and activism and speaking up for, you know, immigrants and marginalized peoples and food all at the same time. It's a really, really beautiful platform. 
Um, what are you excited about as we begin to wrap up here? What are you excited about uh, happening now? I mean, you have millions of social media followers. You have a best-selling cookbook. Um, you're running marathons and you're, you know, making content. You're doing all these things. We didn't even get into. I, I always love to talk. I'm not a runner, but I love the idea of running. <laughs> and I would love to run. I have very bad asthma. I've always struggled with anything that's like high intense, uh, you know, uh, um, you know, movements and stuff like that. But I, I love the idea of it. I had, um, do you know who Mary Kane is? Yes. She's a runner. Yeah. I saw she was on your podcast. Yeah. She's she is a, incredible. She's amazing. She's, she's so amazing. Inspiring. Right. And so, you know, I talked with her about that a little bit. I just, yeah, I love the idea of it. We didn't even get to talk about that. Um, but all these amazing things going on, I'm, I'm sure you feel a little bit like you're on cloud nine right now during these like weeks. But what, what are you looking forward to in the days, weeks, months, years ahead? When I think about that question, I think about what the Korean vegan is designed for. Why do I do what I do? At first, it was because I wanted to prove to myself that I could still continue eating Korean food while being vegan. But because of the way the platform has transformed over the past four and a half years, and specifically in the last year and a half, I realized that there are a couple of things about me that I think will always be there. And, you know, you were talking about the Enneagram. I was like, ooh, I got to figure out what my Enneagram is. I was like trying to do that while I was walking here. <laughs> Couldn't get to it. Um, good. But I think that, you know, my personality, and I guess it's not a surprise, I am an advocate and I am an advisor. Those are the two things that I've learned about myself over the past year. And ultimately, the Korean vegan is about compassion and empowerment. Those are the two things. And so ultimately, you know, when I think about what's ahead for me and what I want to do next, I think about how can I empower people, particularly our young people, to embrace compassion mm. in order to effectuate sustainable change for our country and for our planet, and then ultimately for themselves. I feel like that is what I'm trying to do all the time. Now, does that happen in the form of writing more cookbooks? Yeah, probably. Uh, does that happen in the form of creating more content? Absolutely. I mean, that's, you know, we're in a direct consumer digital age. And I think that my participation in that is important in sort of broadening the reach of that message. Um, but I think you know, part of me just doesn't really know, like, kind of what's next and or what I'm excited for um, specifically. I'm really just focused on, again, trying to do everything that I can with intention and with a lot of thought so that nothing is a reaction, you know, and nothing is sort of born out of FOMO and fear of missing out. And rather, it's really born out of doing doing the thing, giving a damn, you know, and, and doing it with with thought. Again, I think that's wonderful. And it, I think that is what is unique about what you're building is that it's so multi-layered, multifaceted. It's not just food. And that would be enough. That's a worthy calling in life to make food for people and to show people how to make it and to get people, you know, eating out less and making more food at home. That is all wonderful. But you're thinking so much deeper about it. Um, and that clearly comes through in your storytelling and your content that you put out. Uh, hypothetical scenario. 
60 years from now, because yes, you will live to 102, <laughs> you pass on to the afterlife and some for some reason, I'm still around and I've been chosen to give your eulogy. So all of your family, your friends, everybody's around to honor and mourn your life. And yeah, I'm standing in front of them with lots of things to say because you've done so many great things. What do you hope that I would say on that day about your life and your legacy? Mm. Really just one thing. She always tried to do the right thing. That's really all I care about. Because whether I'm an advocate, whether I'm an activist, whether I'm vegan or any of those things, um, the most important thing that exists for every individual person is knowing who they are. Can't do anything unless you know who you are. Because otherwise you're just going to be led by the world around you instead of led by intention. Right. And for me, knowing who I am is a function of knowing that I'm always trying to do the right thing. And if I know that, if I know that I'm always trying to do the right thing, then shit happens and it's still okay. Yeah. And, and you know, even though that's a simple, if that was the five-second eulogy, she always tried to do the right thing, that is the furthest thing from a simple eulogy because that takes so much fucking work to get to there, right? You don't, you don't, you don't happen upon living a life where you try to do the right things. That doesn't happen on its own. Yeah. It comes from doing hard work. It comes from getting to know yourself so that you can lean into those things, so that you can admit when you're wrong, so mm -hmm. that you can tell everybody when you're wrong, so that when you do things that are right or fuck up the next time, they trust you still, right? Because if you're always trying to give this impression that everything's great and I'm the best and I'm so good at what I do, blah, blah, blah. Then when you do fail and you don't really talk about it or you try to make excuses for it, people are like, yeah, that's that's sketchy. I don't want to follow that person. But if you live this sort of this humble, transparent life and the goal of that is to do the right thing, you're I mean, there's no the, the sky's the limit with what you're going to be able to create, honestly, with you in particular, because it's already done so much in the last five years. As you've already pointed out, the Korean vegan can grow and grow and grow, continue to influence people, continue to help people in so many really beautiful ways. Um, I hope everybody goes to get this cookbook. Me the, too. We'll, we'll put the link. <laughs> well, let's make it more bestseller on different. It's, it's been a multiple list at this point. Yeah. If, if, if you hit New York Times in the first like week, like you're going to get other lists. And so it's already been on a multiple list, but you can never have enough of it. And obviously, if this one does really, really, really well, which it already has, if it continues to do really well, you'll get to do more stuff, right? That's exactly. the way this world works is <laughs> if this thing does well, you'll get another opportunity to do something similar or bigger or better. Um, so everybody go get this book. I hope um, – I wish the best for you. Thank I you. admire the hell out of you. And I hope that you continue to uh, live a life that says, I'm just trying to do the right thing. Exactly. I hope that for you too. Thanks. Dear friends, that's it for today. Thank you for spending time with us this week. To find links for everything mentioned in today's conversation and to keep up with all things Let's Give a Damn, visit letsgiveadam.com. And if you have a couple of extra minutes to spare after you're listening to this conversation, please go leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It helps so incredibly much. A sincere thanks to each and every one of you for showing up today. I'm grateful for you. 
Chad Snavely, Jess Collins, and the team at Sound On Studios made this episode. The music is by our friend Propaganda. As always, you can reach out to me anytime and for any reason at hello at letsgiveadam.com. I love you all. Be safe. Keep giving a damn. Bye for now. <laughs>